4, verses 13 through 17. And as I was thinking and, and praying what we would be looking at this morning, I decided that we would look at the exact same passage out here that we would be in the teen class today. Uh, for the last six months, we've been studying through the book of James as a youth group. We started on April 17th with James chapter 1, verse 1. And we've been working our way through just what is a wonderful epistle. And today we find ourselves at chapter 4, verse 13. And we learned all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, that James was writing this letter to the 12 tribes that had been scattered abroad due to the dispersion of the Israelites. And James wrote to these Jews not only comforting words, but words of instruction and words that contain commands. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 54 commands given in this letter alone, all to do with how Christians should be living their lives. Despite everything that these Jews were facing at the time, I'm sure they were facing uh, trials, tribulations, persecution, uh, their world just kind of got shook. James doesn't allow for any excuses due to their circumstances, and there's none for us today as well. A quote that I'm fond of that kind of relates to this is, Faith is not only believing in spite of evidence, but it's obeying in spite of consequence. Because a true and living faith, the kind of true and living faith that James talks about throughout his book, is living your life in such a way that you prove your salvation, you prove your faith by the works, by your obedience, and by the fruit that comes forth from it. Of course, most likely everyone here today understands that we're not saved by those works. We're not saved by that obedience. We're not saved by that. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if we've truly been saved by grace through the faith that Paul's talking about, it really should change the way that we live our lives, shouldn't it? Let's look at verse 10 there in Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, there should be a demonstration of this new faith. There should be, a, there should be evidence of this new self. There should be a display of this transformation that's occurred within us. Romans 12.2 kind of describes this. It says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove... What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And as Christians, that really should be our desire. We should desire God's will to be done in our lives. We should desire to do God's will. And we really should start with his revealed will that we find in Scripture. For example, uh, we find that it's God's will that people be saved, uh, that we be spirit-filled, that we be sanctified. It's God's will that we be submissive, that we suffer for the sake of the gospel. We find that doing God's will is an act of worship. Uh, we, we find that doing that, it should come from our hearts. And the only reason that we can do this, the only reason that we have the capability to do it in the first place is because God has granted it. All of this is revealed will that's in Scripture. And as a true believer, we should desire all of God's will for our lives, his revealed will as well as his unrevealed will. We should desire for God's will to be done. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we always do it, but we should desire to do it. Because the true and living faith that James talks about in his book, it's not just someone who comes to church now and then. It's not just someone who identifies themselves as Christian. It isn't someone who goes to a Christian school. A true and living faith is a faith that comes from a divine, a supernatural change in one's heart 
and it manifests itself by the way that you live your life. You see evidence of the change that's occurred. Unfortunately, many people out there are deceived about this truth. That's why James tells us in chapter 1, verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Even though James is writing this letter to comfort, to encourage, to instruct those that are scattered abroad, he also wants them to look at their lives to make sure they're not deceived about what they're claiming. You see, in the world today, we examine the authenticity of everything, don't we? Uh, We look at diamonds. You know, you're looking under a magnifying glass at a diamond. We look at gold, silver, fancy watches. Uh, When you go to Walmart and pay with a $100 bill, not that I ever do that because I don't ever have that. But, you know, they take the marker and they check it out, right? Uh, when I was younger, I collected baseball cards, and you always wanted to make sure that when you got a really good card that it wasn't fake, it wasn't a phony. Uh, and you can even send that off to certain card companies to have the authenticity of that card proven to make sure it's real. And why do we do this? Why do we go through all this trouble to make sure that, that these things are real? Because you see that there's too much at stake to be wrong about something that's of great value, Right? Well, there's nothing, absolutely nothing more valuable than salvation. And throughout these four chapters, James has been teaching us there in the youth class examples of how a Christian should be and should not be living. And it allows us to self-examine ourselves in a sense. It allows us to examine the most valuable and the most important thing in the world, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Because like we read in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace through that faith that were saved. In our text today, James gives uh, another mark, another identifier, another way of examining one who has a true and living faith, and that's one who desires the will of God to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, including the making of our plans for the future. And our text today is just so practical. It's just practical Christian living, and it's so relevant to all of us today because we all make plans, right? We all make plans. Right now as we speak, I'm sure that most of us in this room have some sort of plan that we're either going to carry out or we're in the process of carrying out right now. Whether it's planning for our retirement, uh, planning for our children's college, planning for our careers, planning a vacation, or just planning our day-to-day activities. We all make plans. And James would tell us today that for a Christian, there's a wrong way and there's a right way to plan. So let's look at our text, verses 13 through 17. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let's pray, you guys. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to read from your word, Father. We just ask that uh, you would open up our hearts to what you would have us learn today. Help us to apply it to our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James has given us another identifier, another characteristic of a true believer, and that's one who considers the will of God concerning the plans that he or she makes for the future. And today, James gives this great illustration of someone who's making some plans for himself. And this person, by most 
commentators is referred to as the businessman. So that's what we'll call him today as well. We'll refer to him as the businessman. In this illustration, this businessman says, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to such and such a city where I will stay for a year, and I'm going to buy and sell and make money. So this businessman's got this plan that he's come up with to make some cash. And that plan consists of leaving his current city, moving to another one for the duration of a year, where he will buy and sell and ultimately make a profit. And this would be a pretty normal business venture uh, for a Jewish man at this time, buying, selling, trading goods. Uh, the Jews were very good and accustomed to this type of business, and it provided a good opportunity to support and better themselves and their families. In many ways, it's not much different than the plans that we make for ourselves concerning our careers and our lives. We make plans all the time. We say, I'm going to move here, I'm going to move there. Just two years ago, actually today, is when I moved here. So I said that once upon a time, too. Um, we say, I'm going to work at this job for a while, and then I'm going to go over and I'm going to do this type of work. Uh, maybe we say, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to major in this and get out and work at this place or the next. We are continually making plans for ourselves. And some of us are much more uh, specific and detailed planners. We plan out everything, and we plan it out daily and even hourly. We have our smartphones, we have our, our schedule books, and everything is planned out right down to the minute. We pull it out, and we look at it, and it says 9 to 5, work, 5.30, get home, 5.45, speak to wife and kids, 6 o'clock, eat, 7 o'clock, exercise, and then that one's actually deleted. 7 o'clock says go back for more food. Um, <laughs> 7.30, mow the lawn. 8 o'clock, take a shower. 8.30, speak to wife and kids again. 9 o'clock, enter my schedule for tomorrow. And then 9.30, sleep. And some people just seem to be wired like that. Uh, I'm not, and it's a good thing because my wife and son would disown me, and, and rightfully so. But we find that some of the most successful people in the world are people who are very organized and are incredible planners. And this businessman that James is illustrating for us today, he appears to be one of those. Uh, he planned where he was going, when he was leaving, how long he was going to be there, what he was going to do while he was there, and ultimately what the purpose of his trip would be. And that sounds like a pretty good plan for a businessman. And I don't think that James is telling us today that there's anything necessarily wrong with this type of plan or making plans for ourselves concerning our futures. In fact, any businessman... Um, that would have any potential for success at all, would have to have a plan of some sort, right? So James is not telling us not to plan our lives here. That's not what he's saying. We find in Scripture that the Apostle Paul made plans concerning his future. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we read, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 28, we read, When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. And just turn there, if you would, for a second and just leave it there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. And we find in other places, and just stay right there for a second, we find in other places in Scripture where plans for, future, plans for futures were made, and that these plans, they, they weren't offensive to God in any way. And even in our uh, illustration today of the businessman, there's no laws broken there. There's nothing necessarily wrong with what's being said. 
because it's not the details of what's being said there in the illustration that's the problem. But it's what's not being said by the businessman. It's what's not being said in our own lives that's the key here. And let me show you what I mean. Right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this time let's look at verse 7. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. Look at those last three words. If the Lord permit. Now look back at our text today. James chapter 4, this time verse 15. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. So the real issue, it isn't the plans that the businessman was making. And it really isn't what he was saying, but it's what he wasn't saying. You see, he had it all planned out. But he was leaving something extremely important out of his plans. And that was the will of an almighty and a sovereign God. He never once takes God into his business or into his planning. Now, James isn't telling us, let's not get mixed up about this. James isn't telling us that we just need to verbally recite if the Lord will before we do every single action in our life. That's not what he's trying to get across. But what he's saying is that God should be consulted in all of our planning and we should live and speak under the recognition, under the understanding that our earthly as well as our eternal destinies are ultimately subject to his will. As believers who strive to be Christ-like, who imitate Christ, God's will should be much more of a concern to us than our own will should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. Look at John chapter 6, verse 38. This is what Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Once again, James isn't condemning making plans. But he is condemning the making of plans based upon the idea that we're sovereign in our own lives and that God isn't. And that we would just go about planning everything with this continuous disregard and lack of interest in the will of the Father. And when we plan our lives like that, when we plan our lives this way, James would have us know that this type of planning is very, very foolish. This type of planning is foolishness. Look at verse 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. When we think about all the complexities, all the contingencies in the world, it's really mind-boggling that we can get from point A to B in any type of normal working order at all. Um, let's just take one small part of our lives. Let's just take a, one aspect. Let's just look at automobile transportation. You sit in this one-ton piece of steel, aluminum, plastic contraption, and you throw some electricity to it. You throw some highly flammable fuels to it. Uh, you drive around on these uh, uh, extremely unforgiving, hard pavements at extremely high speeds. And all the while that there are other people that are doing the same thing. It's not just you out there. All these other people are doing the same thing. And all of this is built, designed, uh, serviced by people that you most likely don't even know in the first place. Then you throw in um, all the other things that are involved, all the other variables, such as the weather, like today, uh, people's moods, uh, children, stereos, bicycles, animals, teenagers. And it really is a miracle that we can get anywhere that we plan to, isn't it, if you think about it? But of course, there's many every day that don't. They don't make it from point A to B. 
For example, there are more than 6 million car accidents each year in the United States. And a person dies in a car accident every 12 minutes. And each year, car crashes kill 40,000 people. But I would guess that the majority of us, if I had to guess, today might be an exception because it was so nasty out there. I didn't plan for that. But um, if I had to guess, I would say that the majority of us, we, we got up today and we had no doubt that we would get wherever we wanted to go, didn't we? And do we even consider that the only reason that we're sitting here right now is because the Lord has permitted it to be so? James is telling us, how can we be so sure about the plans that we've made for ourselves when we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, much less what the rest of today will bring? And it's absolutely foolishness for us to think otherwise. In verse 14, James backs this up by giving us a couple characteristics about life in general. And the first one is the future of this life is uncertain. The future of this life is uncertain. The first thing that James says about the uncertainty of life is what he says there in verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Many times we see New Testament writers, they, they draw from, from uh, Old Testament scripture and, and they make uh, to present us with a statement or a certain truth. And that sounds a whole lot like what we find in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. And I'm sure you guys are probably familiar with that. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And this is so true. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, do we? We can plan. We can schedule. We can have everything just worked out ever so perfectly. And then what happens? Life happens, right? Life happens. The contingencies happen. The unexpected happens. The unforeseen happens. The out of the blue happens. One of the most feared boxers in his prime was a man named Mike Tyson. And when asked about his challenger's game plans toward him, uh, Mike said, hey, you know, everybody's got a plan, but then they get hit. And, and I think for us as Christians to believe that we know what the future holds and to plan accordingly and presume that all of those plans will come to pass just exactly as we have willed them, is ridiculous. And it's much more ridiculous than it would be to get in the ring with Mike Tyson, and that would be a pretty silly thing to do, especially if you wanted to keep both of these guys intact. (laughs) Because we don't know the future. Only God is capable of that. Only God knows the beginning and the end and everything that will come to pass in between. Remember in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10? Remember the former things of old, For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. You see, there is none of us that are like God. And it's ridiculous, it's just absolutely ridiculous to think that we can be so certain of things to come, except for what Scripture has revealed to us. So we must consider the uncertainty of the future when we make our plans. But also, James would have us consider that the frailty of this life is unremarkable. The frailty of this life. And have you ever considered just how fragile we are as human beings? I mean, just how fragile that we are, really are? And I'm not talking about how some of us are weaker than others or stronger or whatnot. I'm just talking about across the board in general, how fragile we are. Most of you are aware that Um, My job consists of, I take x-rays and CAT scans on people, and it's so common to 
see somebody come in with something minor, something they thought was no big deal, uh, a headache, uh, abdominal pain, something like that. And then the CAT scan or something else would reveal that there was something much more serious that was going on within them that will eventually change their life and all of them that are close to them. I see this almost every day. And I'm reminded of the story of Dr. Robert Atkins. Many of you have most likely heard of the Atkins diet. You guys heard of that? You see, Robert Atkins, for years, he combated his weight. He combated a heart condition. He took every precaution imaginable to live a long and healthy life, only to walk to work one day to slip on ice and to hit his head on the sidewalk and die of a head injury. A couple months ago, my grandfather, who was in relatively good health, walked into the hospital for a routine surgery. Three weeks later, he was dead due to complications. And we all have a story just like this. We all do. Because the reality is we are so incredibly fragile. Look again at Isaiah, this time, chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You see, we are so weak. We are so fragile. But not only is our future uncertain, not only is our lives frail, but our lives are short. Our lives are really short, too. And that's, I think, the third point that James makes in verse 14 is that the brevity of this life is undeniable. Life is just so short. We really are so temporary here on earth, aren't we? In verse 14, James calls our life a vapor. A vapor that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. The Greek word there, where we get vapor, is atmos. And it sounds a lot like atmosphere. Uh, It's moisture in the atmosphere. It's a mist. It's your breath on a cold morning. It's fog. And here in Sonoma County, we're really accustomed to fog, aren't we? It rolls in, and then it burns off. The next day, there's another one. comes in, and then it's gone. And so on and so on. Well, James is telling us today that life is that fog. It's short, it's unpredictable, and in and of itself, it has no control over its beginning or its end. Job understood this. Look at Job chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower, there's that reference again to a flower, and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And then down to verse 5. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. And we find that David contemplates this truth as well in Psalm 39, where he says, Lord, make me to know my end, my measure of days, and just how frail that I am. You see, none of us have any promise of tomorrow. Life is uncertain, life is fragile, and life is short. And if all of this is true, which I think that we can all agree, of course, that this is true, then wouldn't it make so much sense if we put our faith if we put our trust, if we put our hope, if we put everything into the one who is anything but uncertain, who is anything but fragile, and whose life is anything but short. 
In Luke chapter 12, we read of the parable of a rich fool, and we recall that he had everything planned out for the future, and he stored up for himself great wealth, but he didn't take into account one thing. And that thing was a God who works and wills according, uh, works and wills everything according to his purposes and to his own glory. Verse 20 describes how this rich man's life played out. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? You see, we have no idea when it's going to be our time. When, it's going, when our time here on earth is up. We have no idea. And it doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old, if you're male or female, if you're Christian or non-Christian. None of us are promised tomorrow. And as true believers and an almighty and a sovereign God, this knowledge, this mindset, it should result in great humility in our lives when it comes to the future, shouldn't it? You see, the error of the businessman in our text is the same error that many of us make throughout our lives as well. We plan our lives out with such pride and such arrogance. We plan our lives out with such false confidence and presumption, and we are just so convinced that we're in total control of all of it. Never thinking for a second that God is sovereign and we're not, that God's will would be done and not ours. It's ridiculous, it's foolish, but it goes even farther than our own ignorance. James tells us that it's also a sin. This type of planning is sinful. And as Christians, we really should know better to plan out our lives all the while disregarding the will of God. And when we do this, we're not only guilty of sinning, by commission, but we're also guilty of sinning by omission as well. And let me just show you how how that is. First, let's look at sinning by commission. Sinning by commission is a sin of transgression because it reveals and it puts into action the pride and the love of self that exists in our hearts concerning all of our planning. Look again at verse 16 in chapter 4 there of James. But now you rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. When we plan out our lives and conduct them in this way, James tells us that we're rejoicing in our boastings and that that's evil. For a Christian, the sin of pride and arrogance involved in presumption when planning for the future with just total disregard for God's will, um, that's sometimes referred to as scholars as practical atheism. And the reason it's called that is because a person may claim to be a Christian They may claim to have put their hope and their faith and their trust in Christ, but they live their lives in such a way, they make their plans in such a way that there is no God, just like God doesn't exist at all. Just like our businessman today, the man says, I am in control, I decide what I want to do, I make my own plans, I am in charge, I am my own master. There is no regard for God whatsoever there, but what there is is a whole lot of pride and a whole lot of self in that. And you know who that sounds like? All those eyes there? You know who that really sounds like? Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
And we might be tempted to look at the businessman's illustration here and say, you know, the businessman didn't say all that. Let's not get carried away with this. He was only kind of making some plans for his life. Um, let's not take all that too serious. But the reality is that that passage there that we just read in Isaiah was the cry of Lucifer's heart. And when we live our lives and we plan our lives out without God, with disregard to God, and when we choose our will over his will, we're essentially saying the exact same thing. Maybe it's not coming from our mouths, but we're saying it from our hearts. And that's how God sees it, and that's how God truly hears it. We're raising ourselves up above God. We submit only to our own authority and to our false sense of sovereignty. God's will is ignored in our lives when we do that, and the only will that we choose to regard is the will of self. But secondly, James tells us that it's also a sin when we know that what we're suppo- we know what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to be doing, and we don't do it. And this is called the sin of omission, sinning by omission. Verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And I think many of us are really good. I know I am. We're really good about identifying the sins of commission. We're really good about recognizing uh, a sin that is doing this. It's uh, saying that. It's listening to that. It's thinking that. Um, it's looking at that. But a lot of times we tend to be very unconcerned with our sins of omission. And many times I think that we look at our sins of omission to be significantly less of a big deal than our others are. But James is telling us that when you know what you are supposed to be doing and what you ought to be doing and you're not doing it, you're most definitely still in sin. Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. And we're also reminded of the parable of the servant who knew his master's will, but he chose not to do it. Luke chapter 12. Remember that his punishment was actually worse because he knew what he was supposed to do, but he didn't do it. And I think if we really start looking at our lives, we start exploring all of our sins, not only by commission, but by omission as well. It's so obvious to us why we have such a need for God's grace in our lives. We really have no idea how miserably far off we are from God's standard. And when we receive that grace, that amazing grace that he gives, shouldn't it cause great humility in our lives? And if you look back at verse 6 there in chapter 4 of James, you read that God's grace is given to the humble. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And that's what we should be, really. Humble. Humble in our present. Humble concerning our futures. Always conscious of God's will in every aspect of our lives. So where are we today? When we look at our own lives, where are we? Where are we concerning how we see, how we plan for our futures? Is there a proud, an arrogant, a foolish, a sinful view of the future that elevates self, that says, I'm in control, I plan it the way that I want, no one's going to tell me what to do with my life, I've got everything just the way that I want it? Or is there humility? Is there submission? Is there kingdom wisdom in your life that humbles yourself and says, God is in control. I'll do this or I'll do that only, only if God is willing and if God permits and only if it fits into the framework of his will. You have a desire for his will, not yours, to be done. Well, I pray that it's the second one 
for all of us. I pray that it's the second one this morning. And I think that that's the whole point of what James is trying to get across to us in this text today. That the prayer of our hearts should be a prayer that is modeled after the one that we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Because a true believer, a true Christian, should always strive to rejoice in the fact that God's will is being done, regardless of how it affects his own will or the plans that he's made for himself. Because that's the mark of a true believer. That's the identifier of a true believer, one that desires that God's will will be done and considers it much more important and much more significant than his own will. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time here. Uh, Father, we thank you for our word. Father, help us to just understand, Father, that, that our will is not what's important here, Father, but it's yours. Help, us, help that to be the prayer of our heart today. Help us to take what you've taught us in your word today, Father, and to apply it to our lives, Father. Be with us this next hour. We pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified in everything that we do today. We ask all of it in his name. Amen.